Welcome to episode 43 of Probably Polly, the podcast where we question everything, even our name. As always, I am your host, Michael Hay. I am your co-host, Sarah Lucas. And I'm your co-host, Mandy Conant. I'm really enjoying Mandy dancing. Yeah, me too. It definitely made me perk up a bunch. I don't, are you listening to music or uh, is that you just dancing just the to music us like in talking? my head. <laughs> okay. And I wasn't even looking at the All Skype right. call. I was looking up at the monitors, so I missed you dancing. Fair enough. Apparently there is a number of plays after which SoundCloud stops recording individual plays. What? So now SoundCloud just tells us we have 23.7 thousand plays and no longer gives us individual numbers. What? Yeah, yeah. The last time I gave you guys an update, we were at 10. So now we're more than double that. Woo! I was going to wait for 25, Yay! but I thought it was really cool that it didn't bother to tell me numbers anymore. It hit 23,000 and gave up. <laughs> You're so big that I don't have time for you anymore. <laughs> Yeah, it used to be like 22,121 listens, and now it just went 23K. <laughs> oh, that's all right. That's, it. that's all good. And I enjoy that. I love it. We have two individual episodes with more than 1,000 listens, and wow. quite a lot of episodes with over 700 listens. Yeah. So some other things. I have been trying on and off to post more good news articles that I think people would like to read on the Facebook page, but I realize there's also an incredibly large poly audience that listens to this. So if you guys want to just message us poly news or news that you think is appropriate to sort of LGBTQ plus issues to the show, I'll try and post those articles up more often and they'll make it easier to have that all in one place if that's anything people are interested in besides just me. (laughs) So the podcast is growing. We're up to almost 24,000 listens, but please continue to like, subscribe and share. Let your friends know. 24,000 listens is a lot, but it's also still sort of nothing in the podcast game. Like, you know, we're still a relatively small podcast in that context. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the nice things about the podcast is that at this point, we have still either responded with a full and complete letter or an episode to every question we've ever been asked. So it's still small enough that, you know, it's very much your podcast. You guys get to make a lot of choices about the direction that it goes. And if you want to write us and ask questions, we are here to directly help and interact with the communities that we serve. And I think that's pretty damn good being as though this is not any of our day job. Mm hmm. Yeah. This is not any of our day jobs. We uh, are still working on how to, we're still working on our day jobs. I mean, yeah. we have the dream that one day we'll parlay this into a way of spending more time with this. And and we are, you know, still getting some donations and we're very, very grateful anytime anyone donates and I see it on my screen. I'm Absolutely, just, yeah. I'm in awe of what that means and what it means for us and what we can do going forward with it. And all the big improvements you've seen are from donations. So the increase in the audio quality, as we said, was 50% funded by donations. And our first resource work was funded by donations. And we're hoping to do some more resource work coming up. Although we've been very busy with the holidays and my new son. I'm not busy with his new son, but no, no, no. Yeah. But, but I have been very busy with my new, but we are incredibly grateful for your support. Thank you very much. We are incredibly grateful for your support. It's always really hard to be like, I'm so grateful, which I very much am. It's very true. Please support us more. (laughs) We're so grateful. May we have some more, sir? (laughs) Please donate. Please like, please subscribe, please share. We're so grateful. Really, though, could you please tell other people? Yeah, uh, but no, I mean, both of those things are simultaneously true, and I think you all understand that. At least so far, no one's written and said we're annoying about it, so. This episode, we're going to tell you a couple of short story elements, basically. So we have a couple of questions that we want to cover, but they're too short to be full episodes, but maybe too long to be intro questions. These are probably Polly shorts. (laughs) (laughs) Mandy had one that was surprising to me that she gets a question relatively often, actually. So do you want to tell me how this goes? 
I get friends that refer their friends to me because they think they might be polyamorous. And I get it. I don't want to say often, but I've gotten it a handful of times. Don't always know exactly how to respond to that. Because like we've discussed before, how can I tell you how you feel or how you are? Can I ask you some clarifying questions? Because also the first time you told me that question, I didn't even understand what you were saying. Like I thought that you meant that they were referring people to you just so those people could ask questions about what the lifestyle looks like or how they can participate in this or what it means to identify as polyamorous or... But, you, but you're saying that there's people who are going, I don't know if I'm polyamorous. Right. Can you help me find out if I'm polyamorous? Mm-hmm. Yeah. This is baffling to me that this is a question you have. I feel like this is something that is obvious for me. And so I, I'm very interested with what where these people are coming from. Well, what's obvious for you? I feel like I am the kind of person who just has a desire to be with more than one person and that that's just kind of a part of me. And so maybe, maybe I just don't understand. I think I just don't understand the context of where they're coming from when they're asking if they're poly. But it wasn't always obvious for you, right? Mm, no, I guess not. In retrospect, it is. Um, it should have been obvious. So, okay. Right. And that's what these people are, you know, hey, I have a partner or I'm married and I've been with said partner for years and I love them but I've started developing feelings for someone else I don't I don't want to cheat on my partner I've cheated in past relationships I don't want to be that person anymore what do I do do I not love my spouse anymore or my partner you know you see that 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 stupid thing on the internet that says if you <laughs> fall in love with a second person, you are never really in love with the first one. Sure, sure. You know, and people believe that shit. Yeah. yeah. And that's the majority of the people that I talk to. That's where that comes from is mm-hmm. I don't know if I should be having these feelings. I don't know if I can have these feelings. Am I fucked up if I have these feelings? Is it going to screw up my relationship? Oh my God, what do I do? And what usually happens is I've had a friend of mine that's actually referred multiple people to me Interesting. Um, <laughs> where she'll go oh hey i think you're polly let me introduce you to my friend mandy who's polly and she can tell you all about it <laughs> your friend isn't polly though I no take it. she's not polly <laughs> is she trying to hook you up with people she knows that you're polly and then she meets other not polly people but whose behaviors don't sound monogamous to them and so yeah. they're like well you should talk to this polly person and maybe you'll find out you're polly that's exactly right yeah huh. the person is a dear friend i love them to death but i don't know that they even know multiple poly people so mandy is the go-to poly mm-hmm. so sure. <laughs> um, and she's just trying to help her friend you know what i mean well and i wonder if that has to do with you know i did the episode for poly pages a while back about like a few weeks ago or a month ago december about whether polyamory should be considered an orientation mm-hmm. and i think especially if you're coming from a, a monogamous background where you might have guilt about the idea of not even being monogamous thinking of it in, as an orientation orientation is a lot of a safer way to think about it yeah. like it's not your fault if it's an orientation mm-hmm. but it's not that you did a bad thing you just didn't right. you know realize who you were until later or something yeah. like that and i want to add on to that that there's no fault in having any type of feelings yeah for sure any of the various arrangements that say you can't even have a bad emotion or the wrong thought is just toxic that's not something that humans mm-hmm. can control it just goes to that whole try not to imagine an elephant in the room you know now you're thinking about elephants it's just not a thing that we can do so then how do you know if you're polyamorous michael Mm -hmm. yeah well you know i went and read a biology book (laughs) so i'm sort of with sarah on the idea that it's a little bit of a confusing question because (laughs) 
the answer is that everybody's polyamorous. The question is, are you monogamous? You know, that genetically, historically, we're a multimeter species. I love that. All word. of our closest relatives are multimeters. Mm. Everything about our biology is multimeter. So the the question isn't, mm-hmm. are you a multimeter? The question multi-mater. is, are you the kind of person that wants to <laughs> commit to monogamy for the rest of your life? Either because maybe you are a monogamous outlier or you believe in the ideals or you think it'll simplify your life in a meaningful way or you don't like dating that much. You know, like there's a lot of reasons maybe to be monogamous. Like you talk about people that have struggled to date even a single person. So like that person probably doesn't want to be polyamorous because it would end up being all they did all day every day was try and figure out how dating works enough to get, you know, to have two partners, much less more. So there's lots of, you know, good reasons to be monogamous. But that would be more my question is if someone comes to me and says, I think I'm polyamorous, I would say, well, you definitely are. Mm -hmm. The question is, would you rather be monogamous? Do you really like what you've got going on? Do you not want to mess with that status quo? Are you worried about the fallout from that? Does that all sound more exciting to you than being with other people? I would sort of flip that backwards. Okay, Sarah, how did you know you were polyamorous? Well, my first boyfriend that was polyamorous kind of threw the idea out there and explained some of the logic behind it. And I became curious. And when I started doing it, I realized that it was who I am, that it felt right, more right than any attempt to be monogamous that I've ever tried before. And then as I began to be reflective on my past, I realized that this was something that had been present all along. I was just so socially Mm -hmm. conditioned to believe that that's not an option for me i didn't know it was an option Mm -hmm. and i think that that happens for a lot of people yes that Mm -hmm. you don't realize it's an option until maybe you're put in a situation you know the last person that i talked to with this question is in a very similar situation that i was in when i had my first polyamorous relationship Mm -hmm. you know she is married she loves her husband she's very happy with her husband and has realized that she has feelings for someone else as well Mm mm-hmm I had always done that, but I had always just cheated on my partner when that happened. Mm. And I felt I, I thought I was a bad person because I had feelings for two two people. Mm-hmm. And it turned out you were a bad person for cheating. Right. <laughs> right, yeah. And that I mean, and that's what it was. Sure. When I finally was in a relationship that I had put so much into and did not want to lose and had the cojones to go to my partner and say, hey, I have feelings for this person as well as you. That was when it all kind of went... I can do that. And he, he was very accepting of it and and just wanted me to be happy. You know, prior to that, I didn't realize that was an option. And I think that that's where a lot of these people come from. They don't know. They don't they think it's they think they're bad people for having feelings for multiple people and that that they're cheating on their partner because they have feelings. Mm-hmm. Right. When I was retrospective, I realized that I was seeing things in a binary. And so it was either I am a bad person, like you said, for feeling like I am attracted to more than one person or having feelings for more than one person, or I'm a good person who's monogamous. I didn't know that there could be a spectrum involved. So it never crossed right. my mind. I thought that it's either monogamous or you're a bad person. My answer to that question is that I always thought that monogamy was predicated on the fact that you were incapable of being in love with more than one person at a time. So the moment I was in love with two people, I was like, oh, well, then that's clearly not a problem. That was always the ethical house that I had built the value of monogamy on. If you can only be in love with one person, it doesn't make any sense. You can't 
give another person what they need if you're in love with this other person. And so it doesn't make any sense to have multiple relationships because you're just being selfish and you're getting something like sex or money out of it, but you're not full relationship. It's this sort of Mm -hmm. like stunted relationship. And so the moment I was actually in love with two people at the same time was the moment I was like, okay, well then why does everyone say that's bad? Because if I can be in love with people and have that emotional content, then I don't know what's missing out of my ability to engage with them because the standard metaphor is like, I have lots of friends and I treat them all very well and I have lots of family and I treat them all very well and I have these, you know, multiple other relationships that are not a problem and, you know, the whole idea was that that romantic love was a some sort of like what is with like certain types of birds where it's like a behavior that you know we were taught was biologically ingrained like you imprint mm-hmm. on this person and they become the one person you care about and then when that wasn't mm-hmm. whatever ended up happening i was like okay well back to the drawing board and that's when right. i went and started reading reading books so I mean, in a sense you could say i became polyamorous when i became polyamorous right like the moment that i loved two people was the moment that i was like oh you can love more than one person and it's interesting because it depends on your level of naivety and how you engage with the world as well because i met I had a person who was a good friend for a while and we spent a lot of time together talking and they had fallen in love with their running partner. Like like physically running? Yeah, like they would, they would run every morning with a, like a neighbor and they had fallen in love on their runs basically. Aww. And there's this love where they both know that they're in love with each other but don't say it out loud or... How do you fall in love during a run? I can't even talk during a run. <laughs> well, if you run every day... And... Yeah, you could probably, you could probably start talking. <laughs> like, oh. You get there. Let's sit here for a minute. <laughs> on their bench breaks, yeah. they, fa- say, they fell in love. falls in love with her running partner on the bench break. <laughs> but uh, the, <laughs> I mean, you know, I was obviously already polyamorous. I was already into the, I wasn't, you know, I was already into the poly philosophy and doing all the ethics work. And I was like, well, why don't you just talk to your husband about it? Why don't you see if you could get a date, you know? And they were like, no, I would just be socially ostracized and the amount that it would cost me and what I'm trying to accomplish in my life wouldn't be worth what I'd get out of that relationship. And it was sad because I got the impression that as most people do at the moment, they felt that this other partner, they were more in love with than their married partner. And I think that's only because it's what they can't have, you know, all that NRE and Mm -hmm. it's the NRE. Yeah. And you get stuck in that permanent NRE zone too. So you don't realize how bad it would suck to lose your current partner and how much you have there. Yeah. I mean, I think actually the question is how much will it cost you and is it worth it? It's not a question of if you're biologically able to be polyamorous because because if it was, you wouldn't be asking me that question. Like if you're here going, um, can I love two people? Then the answer is yes. <laughs> right. You already do or you're not sitting here having this conversation with me. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think, I, and I may be wrong, but the impression that I got from the mutual friend was this conversation started as a, I had these feelings for this person. I don't don't want to be that cheater anymore the mutual friend was all like you could be polly yeah. <laughs> let me introduce you to mandy yeah. super polly mandy <laughs> so. i feel like so few people listening to the show fall into the group of people that you might be like definitely check with your friend and see if they're okay with that although mandy is literally a spokesperson for polyamory so probably okay with that like <laughs> Yeah. We are probably the people who are most okay with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah that, that's a good point. But still, maybe still check. Like, it's still emotional labor. It's still a big ask. Well, and they, I mean, she definitely asked, hey, are you okay to take some questions? And Okay, that's good. Yeah, yeah. Good. Well, so. Yeah, she did. She actually contacted me first and was like, hey, mm-hmm. can I give my friend your number? Yeah, it wasn't. Got a bash for your friend there. I didn't just get a friend request. Yeah. <clears throat> <laughs> like, oh, how do I know you? I heard you know this Polly thing. <laughs> 
That's good. That's not how I answer the phone. Super Polly Mandy, can I help you? I think you need a t-shirt that says, I will get you a PPP t-shirt that says Super Polly Mandy. I think. Again, I think it's very fascinating that people go, how would I know if I'm Polly? Oh, I have an easy answer. Have you loved more than one person in your life romantically? Guess what? Yeah. <laughs> yep. You're polyamorous. When I came out to my mom and she was just like, well, I just, I don't understand how you do it. And, you know, but if you're happy and I went, hey, mom, so you're telling me that when you got with dad, you didn't love anybody else after that? Well, I mean, not like that. And I was like, so maybe let's just say you did. And hey, wouldn't it have been awesome if you actually got to actively love both of those people? Oh, it would have been. Because <laughs> yeah, my parents had a, my dad worked on the road a lot when I was young. Mm. And they had a don't ask, don't tell policy. Interesting. <laughs> but my mom said, whatever you do out on the road is what you need to do while you're out there. What? Yeah. No. Just don't bring anything home. Yeah. That, well, that was very common in that time frame. Yeah. And then my mom was home. So it was a, you know, you do what you need to do with your friends, but I don't want to know you're doing it. And then when I get home, he would be on the road for like three months at a time. And then he'd come home for two weeks. So she understood that my dad was a horn dog, man. Like (laughs) Mandy, I don't believe it. I I come from solid stock, Michael. (laughs) Don't. I don't think so. So, you know, so she knew, you know, that it, it, he, that's what he, he was going to want to do. And she wanted him to be happy. She didn't want to be miserable for three months, you know? Yeah. But that was just physical. It wasn't Mm -hmm. emotional. And that was where she had a hard time understanding Polly. And then when I I explained it to her, it was just like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the funny thing is, I've definitely met people at polyamorous conferences who are in don't ask, don't tell relationships. So, I mean, depending on how you want to define it, (laughs) your mom Mm -hmm. could self-identify that way. So that's fascinating. I mean, I definitely think they were ethically non-monogamous, but only during certain periods of time. Right. And that gets into a question of what's monogamy again, because as I said, in the, you know, in the 50s, what what we now call serial monogamy was called serial non-monogamy, that you you were non-monogamous by having many suitors in secession. Mm. And this is one of those things I talk about the hegemony in terms adapting to maintain the cultural norms. So the idea that monogamy is still the norm now, but it was the norm then and they're the same is so, so wrong, right? That the monogamy from that time frame was actually just one part partner like you marry the person that you sleep with for the first time kind of stuff right and it's very different than modern quote-unquote monogamy where you date around and sleep with you know five ten people whatever and then you decide the 11th person is the one and you marry them and you go we're monogamous and you're like yeah but you weren't right (laughs) you definitely had at least in that grouping of people you were with three or four people you loved especially if if you're in the monogamous mindset you're trying to fall in love with each of those partners if you're in that mindset the whole time obviously there's people Mm -hmm. that like quote play the field or do something like you know that aren't doing that right maybe some of those people were compartmentalized some other way for you like a one-night stand but but at least three or four of those you were definitely trying to be in love with so you definitely have had multiple loves in your life and you feel like they all could have been the love of your life and then you ended up with someone who's you know usually the best of in your opinion the the grouping that you were with but but it's certainly not monogamy you are not with one person the whole time and you're not only in love with one person the whole time it's an entirely different sort of animal but it gets the same name and treated like there's a coherence like oh it's the same for the last 50 years it's not it's totally different (laughs) I love the people who who are huge fans of like The Bachelor and The Bachelorette. And I'm like, 
<laughs> yeah, and they still believe in monogamy. It's like, that is not monogamy. <laughs> <laughs> that is the furthest from monogamy. Like, he yeah. has a relationship with 20 <laughs> yeah. women at the same time. You do realize yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> like, you think I'm super poly Mandy. <laughs> like... <laughs> Well, it's a harem show. Those have always been popular. Uh, but I mean, it's yeah. it's if you believe any part of it towards the mm-hmm. end of the season, he it's down to like two or three people that he has sure. feelings for and they yeah. all know about it. Right. What the fuck is polyamory if that's not what it right. is? Right. <laughs> what I meant there when I said harem is I actually was referencing harem animes. Oh. It's an entire genre of animes where one character has some high number of suitors, like five or six suitors. And in all of those animes, the question is, who will they end up with? And it's just like that, where like they have feelings for all of them. They Everyone likes, likes the main character. They're all jealous about everyone liking the main character. Everyone knows everyone has feelings for the main character. And in many of them, the anime, you can tell, is over when they choose one of the people in the, in the group. And that's the end of the anime. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that's sort of like the same thing we talk about when people who are coming from a monogamous background are interested in cheating, but not being polyamorous. Because when they're cheating, they're thinking that you're going to end up choosing them. Yeah. But at some level, they think like you're going to actually leave your partner and come be with me and we're going to be monogamously um. Hap- um, happily ever after and that's part of this switch culturally from dictionary monogamy to modern serial monogamy mm-hmm. because there really isn't a difference if you're being serious about it between dating 20 women at once and choosing one at the end and then staying true to that person and dating 20 women in a row and choosing one at the end and staying true to that person if you think that that's what you're doing normally and a lot of monogamy allows for dating multiple people as long as you haven't yet agreed that you're exclusive like you're not at that level of knowing each other yeah. is pretty common as well and it's seen as being monogamous although it would not have historically been seen as being monogamous to have multiple suitors courting you simultaneously and if those partners were juggling balls it is much easier <laughs> to juggle one ball i want to juggle balls. multiple you know in succession than it is to juggle 20 balls at one time though sure Okay, you're just talking about juggling balls, and I just can't think about anything but juggling balls. <laughs> <laughs> like juggling twenty balls at one time, like yeah, I can, I can handle that. Not <laughs> anyway. Sorry, what does we that just look lost like in your brain. Sarah. What is, yeah, what is Sarah's mind imagine? Do you need a know. moment, Sarah? <laughs> I, I'm confused how juggling even imagine works. There. Those are attached That's to what a I'm person. Thinking of. You can't throw them. That Michael's a day like now. Them. I was that looked horrifying to me. I don't know what that <laughs> hand gesture was. It looked like she was just sort of slapping them around, like <laughs> maybe that's just Skype, Skype, Skype getting it wrong. Sorry, sorry. Mind went other places when you talked about juggling balls. I'm just. <clears throat> Anywho. <laughs> Yeah. Sorry. Right. Compose it, yourself. Sorry, not sorry. It's, <laughs> it's certainly less work to do serial monogamy than it is right. to to make polyamory yes. work. Anybody that tells you polyamory isn't a lot of emotional labor is not Lying. accurately representing the yes. scenario involved or is probably engaged in substantial harms to some of their partners in order to make that fit. It's yep. a lot. Worth it. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I mean, obviously everyone here agrees that that's worth mm. it. Uh, I definitely have moments, though, where I'm like, is it? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> 
But it's there's so fleeting had, moments. <laughs> you, I mean, you had moments the yeah. other way too, though. Like when you're monogamous, you're like, is this really worth it? So I mean, right. there's always going to be moments <laughs> where the the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Yeah. So I don't think that's the end all be all. All right. Then we had a question. The person who wrote it didn't say if they wanted to be identified. So they will be anonymous community member wrote that they were interacting with a Facebook group on a hypothetical situation and wanted us to weigh in on it. So the question looks more like who is more obligated to disclose in the following scenario. Person A, we'll call them Mary, has a chronic STI. Person B, I'll call them Stu, does not have that chronic STI and presumably does not <laughs> want it. Not fond Neither of it. Mary nor Stu initiate a larger safer sex conversation before sex is mary more obligated to disclose their status to stew prior to sex so does the answer to this question change if the sex was barriered or not no so i'm a little confused by the original language of who's more obligated to disclose because i don't know what the other person would dis i don't know what stew would disclose in the scenario if they have no stis and no other relevant disclosures did you just add that part in that Stu doesn't want to get an STI or was that just assumed? That was written in, but as an assumption. Stu does not have the same, does not have the chronic STI and presumably does not want it. So that's where I'm falling is that Stu is adamant and vocal that he does not want an STI. Oh, again, here I think that's assumed, but they says they did not have any talk about any of this. So I'm assuming that that's more like, I think we just assume that nobody wants an STI. Like, I think it's a, a default assumption. Okay. You have people that will not exclude partners because they're, they have an STI. Okay, I see. But you know what I mean? Does maybe the emailer, are they assuming, when, when they said who was more... Who, who was, what was, it? say it one more time. Well, they asked who was more obligated to disclose, but by context, I'm starting to think they mean who's more obligated to bring up the safer sex conversation almost. Oh, okay. Like whose responsibility is, should it be, who has more of a responsibility to bring that situation up? Okay, so scratch that and they both have the fucking responsibility to bring it up. <laughs> yeah. Like it doesn't matter if you test positive for an STI or not. Safer sex is your fucking responsibility if you're having it. If you're having sex, safer sex is your responsibility. Having the discussion. One more time. One more time. <laughs> She's already done two. Okay, we don't, need, we don't need to one more time something she said twice. No, no, no. <laughs> I think the third time. It's, Go it's, on. It, I mean, it, you're a fucking adult. Yeah. It, it is your responsibility. Don't ever, ever, ever assume it's somebody else's responsibility to bring up that topic, to have that conversation. If you don't want an STI, you probably want to talk to your partner before you're sexually active with them and say, hey, <laughs> just so you know, I don't have an STI, nor would I like one. <laughs> I agree with Mandy. I think it's every adult's responsibility to have the safer sex talk every time before sex. I think it's irresponsible to be having sex without the safer sex talk. And I think that partly because STIs as STIs are more problematic the more the of the pop percentage of the population has them. So even if you personally don't care about getting an STI, I kind of think you have a sort of vague obligation to try and minimize the the passing of STIs among people. Or at least give your partner the option to have the STI or not. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. at least give your partner the option to have consent about their yeah. risk level. So there's nobody more obligated. You're both obligated for yourself to have the safer sex discussion before sex. 
Here's your third time. <laughs> Thank you. And so then people were saying that Mary had more of a duty to proactively disclose and cited uh, morals, ethics, and consent. And there were people suggesting that the legal framework imposed around some locations having HIV plus folks having sex without disclosure can be criminalized means it's a valid argument for needing disclosure. And this person says they disagree that the legal framework defines ethics and the idea in general. I obviously automatically disagree with the legal framework defining ethics. Because fuck legal framework. Yeah, yeah, that's the legal frameworks are not ethical frameworks. But I, I do think you, if you know you have an STI, you have a responsibility to disclose that because under our robust informed consent construct, anything you think the person is likely to want to know, and most people would want to know if they were going to engage in sexual conduct with someone that has an STI before they did so, you're doing that for them. And I know there's a lot of stuff like, well, they should ask, but sometimes people get carried away and not letting them have that opportunity to have consent because they got carried away isn't sort of the ideal ethical standard for sure. And then there's some interesting stuff that if we basically shame everyone or create an ethical framework that requires everyone to disclose that they have an STI, people will stop getting tested so that they can avoid having to tell people they have STIs is a concern. And I would say that's true if you also didn't have the obligation to disclose the last time you were tested. Like disclosing last time you were tested is sort of a common disclosure for STI talk. So like the first question that I ask when I start an STI talk is when was the last time you were tested? What kind of partners have you had since then? And what were the results at the time? Yeah, I started the same way. Yeah. So and if the person looks at me and says, oh, I haven't been tested in five years, that's much more of a red flag for me than than by far than I have HSV1 and I was tested six months ago for everything and have used barriers with these partners and not with this one fluid bonded partner and my fluid bonded partner was tested and they have nothing. To me, that's a lot less scary. Yeah, yeah seriously. Because the other person is the is doesn't give a shit. That's what I yeah. read. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. One, one has responsibility and one right. is taking responsibility for their own body and the way that their interactions with others and the other one isn't. So I don't think it disincentivizes people from getting tested because the people that have these conversations know what being tested versus not being tested means and know a lot about what having these STIs mean mm-hmm. on the back end. I mean, the, the question I also have is why would you not do the disclosing if you have the STI? Because the only reason I can think of is that you think it might change your chances of getting to have a sexual act. And newsflash, the person that you're fixing to have sex with will eventually get tested and mm-hmm. <laughs> if if you pass it to them they're probably going to stop having sex with you at that yep. point <laughs> well that that too but you know, we might be consuming a, a short term engagement here yeah where they might not be seeing that person again but to me it's the only reason to not tell them is the expectation that telling them would cause them to change their mind about sleeping with you and the very fact that you're concerned that they might do that to me tells me that you understand that them knowing that affects their consent so I do think that not doing that is denying them the option to consent mm-hmm. and granted they, they should have asked but that's also like the whole buyer beware concept like if you sell someone a car 
car and you know it's broken and they drive off and the wheels fall off and you're like you didn't ask if the wheels would stay on okay yeah they didn't ask that if you had a contract that said like you buying it as is and they thought they understood what was happening but like even then the contract says as is like even if you brought it up and were like i'm not going to disclose what i do or don't have because i don't think that's an appropriate conversation and then they can make a decision based on that statement that to me is still a lot better because again if i'm trying to date someone and they're like i don't i refuse to disclose my sti status because i don't think it's ethical to be asked that i'm gonna go okay and i'm gonna use that as my basis for deciding whether or not i want to do anything (laughs) and i'm definitely not gonna do anything because i don't like your ethics bro (laughs) (laughs) yeah um, but, but, but you're giving you the chance to actually consent to it. Like we've talked about before, like if you're going to not answer certain types of questions, telling people that you're not going to answer those questions. Does, a, does give some type of consent. Yeah. But just not bringing it up is not okay. Mm-hmm. Then they went on to note that the general structure in public health is to focus on inciting self-sufficiency in folks, because when you create a cultural norm that the other person is the person you should be leaning on, then it doesn't go as well. Sort of like the same concept uh, the metaphor i can think of is when i was driving they taught you always drive defensively because mm-hmm. you just don't know what the person in the other car is doing but i think they also taught me not to hit people pretty sure mm-hmm. been a while since i was in driver's ed but i think that was a lot of my lessons too so yes <laughs> being responsible for yourself is super important like the most important thing you can do for your own safety is to always have these conversations to make sure you're having these conversations to make sure that you're in a comfortable safe place And I thought the way you were going was when you were talking about self-sufficiency was it's self-sufficient to bring the conversation up because you're putting it on yourself to do it. I think here the self-sufficiency is more about how there's not a risk to the person who has the STI. The risk is to the other person. So the kind of self-sufficiency they're talking about is protecting your own risk. And so, yeah, I think that that we do encourage that. I think we talk about that a lot, actually, making sure you're having these conversations, making sure you're checking. Let me stop for a minute because there's a ton of different STIs. I mean, not a ton, but you know, a handful for sure. Sure. And just because you have STI number one doesn't mean Stu doesn't have STI number two and not bringing it up. Now you're going to have one and two, bub. Sure. So it's... (laughs) That was a little. <laughs> yeah, that was a little like dismissive. I thought you no, were no, no. going to be it's... excited about that revelation, but <laughs> I thought it was great. I thought it was a great point. Because well, the, the... so just because you have STI number one doesn't mean you're not by bringing it up doesn't mean you're not protecting yourself from two, three, four, seven, and eighteen. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this was interesting. So then the person went on to say, I also argued that in addition to being responsible for their own safety, many people, them, myself included, this is them, not me, don't initiate safer sex conversations prior to sex as a rule because there's nothing the other person could disclose that would change the outcome and i think that's a lie i think that's bullshit I mean, I think that it, that might be the case for some people, but I think that the majority of people that would not apply to. Well, a couple of things. I think that if you say the sentence, hey, do you want to talk about STI statuses before sex comes up and you're the person that doesn't, you by all means, if you want to say that, can say, well, I don't like to because nothing that you could tell me will change my mind and I don't find those conversations as fun. But if you would like to, I'll have that conversation with you so that you feel safe. And then you still have moved on if you both agree to that and there's actually a a level of consent that happened yeah but that's not what they're saying is it they're saying that nothing the other person could disclose would change what they're about to do so like once they've decided to sleep with someone right so there's no point to them there's no point in having the conversation because it doesn't matter if the person's hiv positive they're still sleeping with them right 
And and that's why I think that I I don't think that that's yeah, I don't think that's, that's the case. Well, they didn't add context here. They just said wouldn't change the outcome, but <clears> this <throat> person could also always use barriers every time. That's true. So this could be a person that no matter what you say, i.e. you can say I have nothing or I have everything and they'll go, so what we're doing is barriers and having safer sex. And that that's their just approach to, to every scenario. Yeah. But barriers are barriers are really only... It depends on how buried you are. I have totally yeah. read about people being like almost wrapped head to toe in plastic wrap. Like right. I don't know how much barriers we're talking, but depending on how ham you go on barriers... But if we're just talking a condom... Yeah, I mean, you can get herpes if somebody just has a condom. If they've got it like around the base of the shaft or on the lips of the labia, like you can still get herpes. But I don't think it's an unreasonable safety protocol to say I use barriers every time with every partner and don't discriminate against what STIs you may have because for me, barriers provide enough safety for my acceptable level of risk. Like that's not way out there for me. No, and that, in fact, that's how I operate yeah. as, as a norm. That's how I operate. I don't discriminate against people who have positive STI tests in any way. I just knowing, so I'm consenting mm-hmm. to the act, but mm-hmm. you know, that's not... Well, I was only responding to your note that you thought they were lying and I was saying, well, it might not be the case that they're lying if... Right. They have these two pieces together because they did actually ask the sub question also, does it change anything if you've already agreed the sex will be barriered? So if you're talking Uh about having sex with someone and we're already agreeing it's barriered, do you still need to disclose? And I think you do for all the reasons that Sarah just brought up, which is there's all sorts of ways you can use barriers differently or more barriers or different barriers or different activities, depending on what STI. The more you know about something, the more opportunity you have to handle it in the most possibly appropriate way way. So I I always think that more information is good. I always think that more sharing is more intimate. I know people think that, you know, STI talks aren't particularly sexy, but I think a lot of that's just practice. And, you know, they talk about how when you start tying things to sex, they become attractive to you. Mm -hmm. Well, if every time before you get have sex with a new person, you have this talk, that talk gets a little bit more attractive. So when that person brings up that talk, you're like, ooh, I know where this is going next. We're going to get it on. (laughs) I'm getting excited about that. Well, that to me, intimacy is sexy. And like you said, having that discussion is intimate. That's not something that somebody discusses with the guy they're sitting next to on the subway. That's an intimate conversation. And to me, intimacy is very sexy. I mean, I think our answer is just going to be both all the way down the line. It sounds like we're all sort of in agreement on that. The answer is just both. I definitely refer back to my first statement. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would I would definitely say I don't think... I don't think your status changes your obligation. Yes, or your lack of status. Do you disagree, Michael? I'm weighing a couple of things in my head because, again, my sense of what consent includes is any information you think that person might want to know. And a lot of people take the assumption of safety in sexual situations. I don't think they should, but they take the assumption of STI safety. So not going, hey, I want you to know... I've been tested recently. I have no detectable STIs. I have had no partner since I was tested. You know, absolute gold star standard. Like I have not had sex for two months since the last, uh, until before I had my test. (laughs) You know, like, I don't, I don't know that, like, I think that's what people in a way are assuming. They don't assume that actual specific scenario, but they sort of assume like 100% safety in this space. And so I don't know that bringing it up to disclose that level of safety has the same moral obligation because there's no risk of harm to other in that scenario. You risk harm to yourself, and I think you do have an obligation to yourself and your own health, 
but I think as a general rule, morally, I, I give people a lot more leeway to experiment with danger with themselves. You know, like if you wanted to try jumping out of an airplane with a parachute, cool. But if you shove me out of an airplane with a parachute against my will, not as cool. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think my sense is, I don't think it's a, like a huge meaningful difference. Like it's certainly not like this person's a monster. That person's great. This person has no obligation. This person has all the obligation as they were suggesting that maybe started happening in this forum. But I do think you have more of an obligation to disclose an STI, even in the context of barrier sex, because I think there is a really good reason to believe that if the person you were going to sleep with knew you had an STI, they'd want to know about it. I mean, as this person points out, there's people who wouldn't, don't care, don't want to know. But I think that's the minority. At least it's the minority of people that I've experienced, and especially in, in like poly contexts. It's definitely not what I hear about in most of the discussions that I am engaged in. Do you disagree? I mean, it's okay if you do. I'm not against you. I do. I do. I disagree. I think I think that's just my view on it. Can you sort of uh, explain why you disagree? Because I want to know someone's STI status, no matter what it is, whether it's negative, positive. Yeah, but you would ask, right? Because I mean, in the situation where one of you asks, this situation is moot. But when I ask, I do it by bringing up my own. Sure, of course. As most people do. Right. So it's it's a moot point. For your interaction, but it's not a moot point as an outside observer. Like as an outside observer, your friend comes to you and is like, oh man, my two friends just did X, had sex, and one of them had an STI and didn't tell the other person. I can't believe they did that. Do you go, well, the other person should have asked. That's totally on them. I... Or do you go, oh, they should have told them. I go both ways. It's like, well, why didn't that person disclose? I would say they should have talked about that before. <laughs> yeah, and why didn't my friend, like, fucking talk about it? Like, it, Why yeah. was that not brought up? Exactly, like, both those two people, like, what are they doing? There's two people fucking in this scenario. <laughs> yeah. Both people have the obligation to talk about this before things are inserted into holes. <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I'm just curious about so many contexts because a lot of this has to do with normalization about what you think normal normal conversations and normal expectations are. Because like if I invited you both over to my house and made dinner and then you took a bite that dinner and started dying and I was like, oh, yeah, it has ghost peppers. I like spicy food. I just assumed you'd ask if you had a problem with spicy food. You'd be like, you are a horrible yeah. monster. Why would you do that to me? Because you don't have an right. expectation of spicy food. But in like, you know, certain cultural context, that makes sense that, that spicy food is normal. You know, you would always ask like what the level of spice is or where the spices are on the table. No, if I knew that I didn't like spicy food and when you cooked dinner and I saw you put Mexican down on the dinner table, I would have said, hey, is that spicy? I have an entire recipe book of spicy Italian dishes. I mean, like, you can put spice in anything. That's my, that's my point, though, is it's the expectation. You see a Mexican dish, you're going to ask because you think Mexican dishes are spicy. So my correlation in my head is allergies. Like somebody with a peanut allergy. If I had a peanut allergy, mm -hmm. I would definitely ask if there was a chance there's peanuts in that before I eat it. And something... Since you did, like, I, I like this analogy of yours, but something that should be brought up is that everybody in this analogy has a peanut allergy. But if everyone had a peanut allergy, I don't think you'd be asking if there were peanuts in your food because no one would let peanuts be in their food. Right. Oh, good point. That's the problem with the metaphor. <laughs> okay, okay, okay. <laughs> we poked holes. My bad. <laughs> But that's how I look at it is if I have an allergy to STIs, I don't want STIs, right? Because some of them can kill me. <laughs> you know, if if I don't want STIs, if I don't want an anaphylactic shock from my peanut allergy, I, when I go to eat somewhere else, I say, hey, 
I'm allergic to peanuts. There's not peanuts in this. There's not a chance there's peanuts in this, is there? Well, but think about other pathogens as a basis. If you have something like uh, a contagious flu virus, but the only symptom is like this year, the flu virus's only symptom was an extreme sore throat. So you otherwise look normal, walk normal, act normal, and even actually talk normal. Only after the flu had run its course did you start losing your voice. So during the infectious stage, you've got like maybe 101 fever and a horrific sore throat. I expect that you will wear a mask and if we had plans, warn me that you have the flu and I might get the flu. I will not ask you that every single time I meet you, even though every time I meet you, you could potentially now have the flu, right? Because you know that I don't want the flu. You know that it's contagious and you know that we're getting into a space where it could in fact infect me. And there is a default assumption of health and non-infectious pathogens without that disclosure. I don't like your analogy because that's passed much more easily. Like I can be in the same room with 40 different people and they're all exposed to the flu if I have the flu. You know what I mean? So I I just think that that's a little loose of an analogy. Well, but the question is about, I mean, the peanut allergy is the opposite problem. As Sarah pointed out, everyone is susceptible to STIs. So in the peanut allergy, the rarity is having the peanut allergy. So generally speaking, the person mm-hmm. with the rare condition is the person that the emphasis is on, the rarer condition, Okay. right? And as much as STIs do exist, there's still only 25% of the population have an active STI. So it's the by far the rarer condition in the two scenarios, right? So if you have a peanut allergy, people don't expect that peanuts will kill you. They put peanuts in a lot of food. It's your, your responsibility to go, hey, is there peanuts in this? But like, it's not my responsibility to ask if there's cyanide in the food, right? Because of course there's not. Right. Or is the food spoiled or has it been out all day? Did I leave this food out? You know, did I leave the food out for four hours? Like if I had food, like I made a pizza and I left it out for four hours, you know, it's now past the food safety threshold. Honestly, I have eaten food that's been over out all night, like my entire childhood. Like that was my whole childhood. I was like, that's not the food safety threshold for pizza. I (laughs) promise you. (laughs) <laughs> well, it is the legal food safety threshold. If you leave pizza legal, out yeah. more than four hours and someone gets sick at your restaurant, you are culpable, right? You're liable. Jerry eats pizza that's been sitting on the counter for two days. So. For sure. That was sort of my mo- that was That was my default childhood activity was everyone comes over. We play games and make pizza. We eat half of the pizza. We go to bed. We wake up. We have breakfast pizza. Yeah. So like. that's That happens a lot in my house. Just shove that shit in the fridge. God. But here's the thing. A new person had walked into my house and walked into the room we were all eating breakfast pizza. I would have been like, so you know, that was out all night. I think it's safe. I think it's good. But it was out all night, right? Because I know that there's a risk there. That like we're all taking that risk together, but we all knew what that risk was, you know, when we came into this scenario. I mean, like people know that there are STIs. It's not like... It's not like people, I mean, how many people leave pizza out all night and then have somebody come in and ask to eat some of that pizza? Like literally everyone I know. Like, my parents didn't know if the pizza what? had been out all night. Like every family, what? every family of men I know leaves pizza out. I mean, maybe it's a guy thing, but like she said, like Manny said, okay. Gary does it. I, I do it. Pizza all of my friends do it. Night. And that's my point. And you that's didn't disgusting. expect it. To me, like everyone I know, that's just normal. And to everyone you know, that's unexpected and confusing. And that's my whole point is that I'm at least okay. aware that there's a danger there that I need to like make you aware of so that you get the risk you're choosing as far as i know almost all of america is likely to understand that there is an inherent risk that pizza has been out all night so i mean it should be a shared responsibility both people should be aware of the idea that the pizza may have been out all night or the pizza may not have been out all night and the only way to determine that is to talk about it i'm going to pick up on her scenario okay because 
we're talking about people who are sexually active. Mm -hmm. So to compare, we're talking about, in your scenario, we're talking about frat houses or (laughs) male-dominated bachelor pads where this happens the most, okay? Sure. If I were to walk in to an apartment (laughs) where three men lived and they were eating pizza, I would definitely go, go, how long has this pizza been on the counter? (laughs) yeah seriously so that tightens the comparison a little bit yeah that's good well like i said i think you're you all might be uh overestimating the stringentness of my claim what i'm saying is like if we were going to use a point system and i think a point system here is dumb i would say that on the point system one person has like 100 points of obligation and one person has like 90 or 95 like I, I don't think it's that okay. huge of a difference at okay. all. Like, I definitely think you need to take responsibility for your safety. But I think there's something about knowing that you have something that the other person almost certainly wants to know. Like the chances they don't yeah. are very, very low. And they might have forgotten. People forget stuff. People are forgetful. They get excited. They get carried away in the moment. And you remember. That's the other thing mm. is you should both be both trying to help you remember. Right. Like that's the thing is you're assuming that person has perfect mental faculties. It's part of what I have a problem with, with saying like you have the same burden to disclose. Is it <laughs> like you're like that? Yeah, maybe you do, but you should both be trying to disclose. Like you should both be trying to disclose yes. the whole time. Yeah. I was just like, trying so, to think of the last yes. person that I slept with that had perfect mental faculties. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like a lot of people that I know can't remember stuff that happened five minutes ago. Right. And so it's very easy for them to go, okay, I need to remember to have this conversation and then immediately forget that plan and end up having sex with you and then going, oh, I should have had that conversation. Whereas you might have thought they might want to know that I have this STI and then decided not to bring it up. And again, I just go back to what's the thought process of not bringing it up? Because I only have two thoughts. It's not sexy. It might not get me laid are like the only two thoughts I have. Or rather, I guess it's just one thought. We might not get we might not end up having sex. And then it's two subversions because either it's not sexy or they'll say no if they know. Right. Mm-hmm. From my perspective, the sexy one is overcomable by cultural reconditioning. That if it is part of what sexy is to have that intimacy in that discussion. Yes. And it's been shown over and over again to work in alternate sex spaces and alternate ways of like being that, that you can make that sexy, then it will be sexy. And the only way it will get there is if everyone always asks. Mm-hmm. And if you're doing it because you're worried they'll say no if they know, then to me, like that's an active, intentional subversion of consent. And like that's mm-hmm. much worse than yes. the original isn't sexy. I mean, then there's the third thing which is it's not sexy to me personally and i don't really care about trying to make it sexy for the whole culture and that's a valid point no one has the obligation to do these sorts of things but then i return to everyone should be having these conversations and you don't know they have perfect faculties you don't know that they remembered Mm -hmm. everything because i run into that i run into that all the time people are like well if they didn't want that they would have said so and i'm like but only if they remembered only if they Mm -hmm, thought of it only if they thought about it we take it on the show as we've said before that the kind of consent you want isn't the legalistic definition. It's this robust, non-coercive, informed consent. And that one of the factors in that is providing any a person who's trying to make a decision with any information that you think that they might want. And so if you think that there's a good chance that they would want to know what your SDI status is, if they thought to ask it, and you don't choose to ask them, then I think that that is not really giving them full consent in that scenario yeah you want to allow the person complete and full consent as to what they're doing yeah and i so i think that's what's going on there but again you have the final responsibility for your own health as we've we've said over and over again so it's it's more like 
I mean, like, I don't know that I understand or even care about the question, like, who has the bigger responsibility? Because my only question is, do you have the ethical responsibility to do X? And if so, you should always do X if you know that that's a responsibility. So to me, you both have a responsibility. Like, if you want to play the blame game and the numbers game, I don't really know. But I do know that if I had a friend who I knew was completely clear of STIs and was like meticulous in their testing and never had that conversation, I would be like, I'm really worried for you and I'm very scared for you, but like, I don't, I'm not worried that you're harming people. And if I had a friend that I knew had STIs and also never had that conversation, I would have to talk to that friend and be like, like, you need to start having that conversation with people. So there's some sort of difference there that's relevant, even though I think everybody should always have that conversation. And I think you should do it for safety. Especially because we're in a community that does tend to be more sexually active. All right. Question number three, Michael. Where's, what's our third short? I don't know. Are we doing a third short? We're at an hour and 20 minutes. I don't know that we need a third short for an hour and 20 minutes unless we have a very short short. Are we capable of doing a short short? <laughs> no. Yeah. Just, just saying. Like, Michael's trimmed us to yeah, a short short before, but it didn't uh, start that way. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't want to do another two hour. Like, I don't know. We did an episode recently that was like an hour and 40 minutes or 20, 20. Mm, I don't the know. last so one was long. long 42 was long. Hour and An hour and 30 minutes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Professor X sex was an hour and 42 minutes that shit was just two episodes yeah (laughs) that one has almost 600 listens by the way that one's doing really well so this you can call this episode probably polly's pair of shorts (laughs) (laughs) that's good i like that yeah so i think that's good uh we want to thank the listeners for your questions and your comments we encourage you to interact with us more you can email us on the website or hit us up on facebook i'm actually surprised like we have a lot of listener questions we get them in spurts like we had a lot of listener questions for a while we actually haven't had any like that was the last listener question in our bank we've now answered all the listener questions we had like this listener question i got yesterday or actually this morning i think so this is a hilarious scenario where i'm gonna write that person back and like 12 hours and be like so we already answered your question it'll be up next week <laughs> uh, <laughs> so what Michael is saying you know, so. is we need some more questions folks yeah if you yeah. send me questions you have a very high chance of getting there quickly yeah <laughs> <laughs> quick you want to be number one <laughs> <laughs> I know right well, to be fair we pick our questions either because there's no other questions or because it's the most interesting other questions we have. So being number one doesn't help you unless there's no number two. Then uh, then you need to be just interested. Yep. Yeah. But thanks for listening. Right. Thanks uh, for well, giving us your time this thanks week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. I don't know what Bye. I want to say. <laughs> have a good... Uh, um, not, are you listening to this at night? I don't know. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.